I remember growing up hearing my parents uh, when they would read a book to the end. I don't know, and I just repeated that same you know tone there, the end. But when we get to the end of a letter, we don't need to skip over it. We need to consider it, uh, draw out of it what God has put there. And so we're going to do that. These are the last words of Paul to Titus in this letter. And I truly believe they're very personal and they're very practical. Let's consider them by first reading them. Verse 8. This is a faithful saying and these things I want you to affirm constantly. That those who have believed in God should be careful. There's the word. Be careful. To maintain good works. These things are good and profitable men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. For they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful." All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So let's look at that together and let's unpack that, if you will. Let's consider together first that they were told by, well, Paul told Titus, and Titus was teaching the church and the congregations there on that island to be careful, number one, to practice, keyword, faithful sayings. To practice faithful sayings. And particularly with this letter, it was verse 8. This faithful saying to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God, well, that would be the Christians on the island of Crete, and by principle, all Christians, should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, if we're thinking about being effective in reaching the people that are in our lives and the people that are around us and our family, our workplaces and our community, in and around the building and all the area where we may live and where we, where we work, we want to be insistent. Timothy, excuse me, Titus was to be insistent. He was to be asserting this strongly. That they be practicing, they be maintaining, that they be giving attention to good works. Good works open the door for many good opportunities to teach. We never want to become a church that only teaches. Nor do we want to become a church that only does benevolence. It's both. The end goal is that a soul will be saved, right? We, we believe that. But oftentimes, it's the good works, it's the good deeds, not merely the knowledge. Now, the knowledge from God's Word must be imparted. It's the Word of God that's the power of God to salvation. But often, before someone will listen to that Word, as we like to say often, people don't care about how much you know until they what? Know how much you care. Somebody says, well, I don't know. Well, yeah, 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 we do know. By this love, and we'll come back to that before this is over. By this love, people will know. They'll know that you're my disciples. Practice these faithful sayings, good works, because good works are good and profitable. They will profit you things in the kingdom of God. There will be fruit that comes from your good works. Good works are just so important. I can't, I can't overemphasize that. And he's going to repeat that again. It opens doors. It helps to make things happen. 
And when we do them not to be seen by men, as Jesus condemned in Matthew 6, but for God's honor and glory to draw people to Christ, it will do what God intended for it to do. Number two, he says next in this whole thing about being careful in your healthy work to avoid foolish, key word, foolish things. Avoid foolish things. Verse number nine, but, so I want you to be busy all the time, careful to maintain good works, because that will profit you. Verse nine, but avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they unprofitable and useless. The word avoid is the idea of to treat one with indifference or to treat that teaching with indifference. Not that we don't care, but as we'll see, this verse is connected next with a person who's divisive. There are times when we need to set ourselves apart from that, to turn our back on, to let it be. That doesn't mean don't contend. We can contend, we can defend, and then move forward and not continue and continue and continue and cast pearl before swine. Jesus taught that. Do not get caught up in foolish disputes. The word that's translated is a Greek word that sounds like our English word, moronic. Moronic disputes. I think of moron, moronic disputes are made by a moron, <laughs> biblically speaking. And Paul is writing to Titus and say, look, avoid these foolish things. Don't give them a platform. Don't give them opportunity. Don't give them an inch. The old saying, you give the devil an inch, you'll take a mile, and all those kinds of things, that's right. Instead, turn away, walk away, turn your back on these things. And one of those things in the first century was genealogies. And from what I gathered in my study, the idea of these wild allegorical interpretations of the Old Testament genealogies. They should have been looking at those genealogies as historical records that would verify the veracity of God's word and show that God preserved Israel and Judah, particularly Judah, to produce who? Messiah, right? They should not be giving themselves to mystical legends and myths. And you can read, uh, you can look on the line about the book of Jubilees. I have that there in the study guide. I think it was written, I read somewhere around 100 B.C., this is a, an example of a book from the little bit that I just cracked the surface and glanced and heard also as well. This is one example of the type of foolish genealogies, the attention to genealogies that they were to avoid. It didn't profit them anything spiritually. Contentions was something else they were to avoid. That would be like strife or useless debate. Strivings about the law. Well, particularly we know from like the book of Acts, chapter 15 and other places, you're talking about like circumcision. So many of the Jews are saying, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the ceremonies of the law and those kinds of things. Especially did they do that to, remember, who? The, the Gentiles, remember. And so instead of teaching the simplicity of the gospel and the principles and fundamentals of the good news of Christ, they were trying to teach things that were irrelevant at that point, especially for Gentiles. And what I think I want us to get out of this about the idea of avoiding these foolish things, letter C on the study guide on number two, is that we need to use our time wisely. Key word, wisely. We need to pray for wisdom. I mean, it says that in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5. And we need to use discernment. It doesn't mean we don't defend the truth and try to teach and 
but it doesn't take very long that you can, you, you can make a judgment in your own mind, in your heart, when you see someone is just contending. They're just arguing. And we're not to be ugly to them, but we're to instead turn the back to that and say, you know, this is not profitable. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to move forward. One of the things I've learned in my little bit of experience, and you probably have too, and if you have not thought of this very much, I would like to encourage you along these lines. Perhaps the most effective thing you can do in teaching people the Bible is to sit down with the Bible open. I used to talk to people a lot about the Bible. And they, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you walk away and you don't know what they heard, what they learned. You don't even know anything. they just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like they're trying to get out of the conversation. But you know, I didn't know any better. I'm excited. I'm over there telling them this, telling them that, telling them this, telling them that. Now, and then even when you have a disagreement, uh, again, a disagreement doesn't mean walk away. This is not saying avoid disagreements. But when you're trying to teach someone, again, the best advice I think I can give is, is ask them, can we sit down together with the Word of God open? Some people will, and we've got to jump on that. And when we sit down with the Bible open, this is a way that we can avoid such things that might happen, like foolish disputes, genealogies, and, and things that would be similar to that today. Now, those things might come up, but again, with the Word of God open, we're going to be more effective. Because what we're doing is we're letting the Word of God be the dividing line. Not what I say the Bible says, but what they're actually reading it says. And, and some of you, no doubt, maybe many of you, have experienced this same thing. You study... You go through, you let them read things, and they look at it, and they say, I, I can't believe that. I had a one-on-one -on -one study once on one occasion with a deacon in the Baptist church in the area where I was preaching at that time. He was reading Acts 2.38, and he said, I, I can't believe that. I said, don't say that. That's not good. Well, Aaron, you're saying, and I've tried to draw the attention back off of me. Aaron, you're saying, I, no, you just read it. God is saying. I, I didn't say anything. It's what God's word says that matters. And I think principles like that, that we can make for ourselves and our own efforts, can help us to avoid things that are otherwise foolish. But bottom line of these things that are foolish is the character of that individual and their purpose. Uh, this week, I think it was, when Mark and I were talking, maybe Brock as well, it wouldn't hurt, it might be well, it might be really good to ask someone early on, sincerely, hey, why is it that you wanted to talk to me about the Bible? Sometimes someone will come straight to you and ask you things. and It wouldn't hurt to sincerely, with gentleness, ask them, hey, I'm wondering, why did you want to sit down and talk to me about these things? You know, be fair, be, be straightforward. You don't have to be ugly. You just, you can help, it can help you to discern and it will help you to learn, and then as time goes along and you see their attitude through the study, something can develop to the point where we would need to avoid a foolish thing, such as disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about things that, things that are of no profit. Things that are of no profit. There are a lot of fanciful ideas out there in the religious world today that perhaps are more pressing than genealogies and striving about the Mosaic Law. There are people that are all involved in various things, you know, astrology and guessing games and guessing numbers and guessing the end of time and all kinds of things such as that, that really ultimately would not affect someone being in Christ or not. And so I think we should start back up on the front end more so with that, you know. I, 
instead of having a long discussion with a denominational person about instrumental music, why not start on the front end and discuss with them about the gospel and how to, how to die to self and be buried with Christ and rise to walk a new life? How to get into Christ? Because let's just say that you converted an entire denomination to a cappella singing. Well, they're still not in Christ, you know. Let's say they threw all their instruments around. Well, we're scripturally worshiping now, which just further makes them think they're okay with God. Well, again, maybe it's a little wiser to go about this another way and talk to them about their more pressing need. Avoid foolish things, things that are unprofitable and useless. And I have there on the study guide because I want us to contemplate how many minutes or hours or days or years and all that. How many of that in our time and all the brotherhood time added together, only the good Lord knows has been wasted that could have been used on real evangelism, real spiritual efforts. Because these strivings only promote contentions and divisions. Again, use your time wisely. So I would suggest that we all pray for wisdom and that we learn discernment by studying the Word of God and we listen to people when we're studying and talking to them. Don't assume what we, that we think they... What, don't assume that we know what they think. Listen, learn, and then over time we can make judgments that will benefit us in being more effective. So he says, be careful to practice these faithful sayings, to avoid foolish things, and that's connected with number three, to reject. Be careful to reject factious people. F-A, keyword factious. F-A-C-T-I-O-U-S. Factious people. A factious person is a divisive person. That's the idea of faction. They are a person who promotes division. Let's look together at verses 10 and 11. So be careful to maintain these good works, verse 8. Avoid these things. They're, un, they're unprofitable. They're useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Again, a factious person is one who's causing divisions. The word reject means have nothing to do with them. Refuse them. And that's in 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 and chapter 5, verse 11. The same idea. Remember, Paul lists some characteristics. From such, withdraw yourself, Timothy. So, if we think that's unchristian, then we've missed that part of Christianity. It's not unchristian. There are times... When people are causing divisions, that we must reject them. We must have nothing to do. We must refuse them, withdraw ourselves to reject a, a factious person. The word divisive there, I think in the King James it's translated like heretic. But the idea there of the original world, from my understanding, it means to choose, to prefer, to take for oneself. It's when a person thinks they have an idea that's novel, that's new, a personal preference, and they want people to follow them. And this is how it looks sometimes in the church today. You've got this brother, and he believes this strongly about what happens at the point of death. And he thinks that the rich man Lazarus is a parable, and it's not really about what happened to a real person. And he's going around not because people ask him, but he's going around and he's trying to convert everybody over to that. And he looks down on those who don't agree with him. And he causes division. Or maybe a sister or a brother who is saying things about the work that's being done with the elders or the deacons or, or the evangelists. And instead of addressing those individuals directly, 
he or she's standing in the little circles of fellowship and he's saying, you know, this, this church is going in the wrong direction. And I, I just don't like this. I, I just, this congregation ain't what it used to be. That, that's being divisive. Instead of going to the source, instead of going to those that have the effect to take care of things, or if there's a personal issue, again, I addressed this uh, earlier in this series, how Matthew 5, Jesus said, go to them. If you have aught with them, go to them. Don't go to the elders, the deacons, the evangelists. Don't take to Twitter and Facebook and texting. Go to them. I just don't know if I can impress that upon myself and others enough. And I say myself because I have sinned in this area before. We've got to obey Jesus by going to people when there's a trouble or there's a problem instead of to others. It causes problems. It multiplies problems and division over and over. He says this, reject him after two admonitions, two warnings. And that reminds me of Matthew 18, 17. Uh, I don't know that it's the exact parallel, but it's very similar. How when there's a personal problem between two people, there's a sin... Uh, you're to go to your brother. If they won't listen, you take two innocent witnesses. You don't bias those witnesses. You don't say, you know, let me tell you about Brock. You need to go with me to talk to him. He's a terrible troublemaker. I don't like him. Go with me. No, you, you let them be innocent witnesses. And you take them with you, and you go, and you try to fix the problem again. If they won't hear them, you tell it to the church, remember? And if they won't hear the church, so that then means it's the responsibility of the whole church. If there's 120 members of the church at Harrisburg, it's the responsibility of 120 members to try to restore that person back. Before then, you withdraw from them. You treat them like one who is a heathen, an outsider, a Gentile. After two warnings, and 2 Thessalonians 3.14 says not to treat such a person that's been withdrawn from or rejected as an enemy. So we don't have to take to Facebook and, you know, this guy's terrible. He's bad. He's bad. He's ugly. And no, we don't have to treat him like an enemy. We're not supposed to. We're supposed to admonish him like a brother. On the other hand, the other extreme, we don't act like it's okay. We don't continue golfing with him. We don't continue to eat breakfast with him. If, if there has been a rejection made, a withdrawal, then we, need, we must. We need and must abide by that so that that individual will learn the seriousness of what they're doing. And he uses the word knowing. That's so connected to this. Look at 10 and 11 together. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-deceived. The word knowing means it's obvious. It's obvious that this guy is he's perverted. That's the idea of warped. He is causing division. He wants people to follow him. He is turned inside out is the idea of the word there. And it's also used in medical ways from my understanding like dislocated, like a bone is dislocated. He's dislocated. He's out of step. He's causing division. He's sinning and he's sinning willfully. He's continuing in a belief and an action and in a behavior to draw people after the way he believes and what he says. And that kind of person is not to be tolerated. Oh, the power and the influence of accountability in the Lord's church when, when such steps must be taken. Granted, that's not the funnest thing in the world to do. It still should be in our hearts a joy to obey God. It's not a get them told. It's a deliver such a one to Satan so that they can be delivered in the day of judgment. Remember that from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
And it is probably the, the case, I think I've heard that it's the case, that such work has been done here in this congregation in years past. Such has been necessary. And if that is the case, then you know it's not easy. But it is a command from God that cannot be omitted. It is a process and it is a work. And we are to be healthy in this way to reject one who is causing division instead of tolerating them, letting it be. The, the consumer mindset of church today tolerates such people. Oh, we don't want to run them off. We don't want to be mean. We don't, we, we don't have to be mean. We don't have to run them off. We just, we just have to reject them after the first and second admonition. You know, we don't have to run their name through the mud. We don't have to laugh at them because they're in sin. We don't have to treat them like an enemy. We dare not. But the healthy balance to this is that there are times when a person who's being divisive, he must be rechecked. History's been warned. That's just the work of the church. That's the work of elders. That's the work of evangelists. And certainly elders would lead in that, I think. I do believe that. A person that sins and continues in such a divisive way is condemned by his own error. Continuing in this, his, he, he's passing judgment on himself. By his own, by, on himself, by his own behavior. He's self-condemned. Now here's the main idea, letter D under number three. Consider this. Hold brethren accountable and obey God's command to keyword discipline. Keyword discipline. And in this particular section, I've tried to make the focus a person who's divisive. A person who is not promoting unity, but is expecting and demanding others to follow what he says, can't be tolerated. When it is, it becomes his church and not the Lord's. And I've seen situations in congregations like that. It was unspoken truth. Everyone knew. It was his church and these were the words I heard in that particular circumstance he gives the most money because everybody knows he's the biggest businessman in town well that, that's not the Lord's church that's not the work of the Lord's church that's not the purpose of the Lord's church for our purposes tonight the purpose of the Lord's church is to be healthy so that we can be effective in reaching the souls that are around us and that will require because what does the world see when we do not treat a bad guy within the church like an enemy but with respect and also firmness they say those those folks over there actually really believe what they say you know the Lord commands them I read and they say in their Bible you know God said to reject they, they actually did that they actually followed through. That wouldn't be easy. Imagine the things that people will be saying when we obey the Lord in this matter. Number four, let's consider together next. That we are to be careful to use and support fellow servants. Keyword, fellow servants. Last part of this letter, verses 12 and 13, not the very end, but getting toward the end, becomes what we think of as more personal. When I, that's Paul, Send Artemis to you, that's Titus, or Tychicus, be diligent, make every effort to come to me, Paul, at Nicopolis. For I, that's Paul, I have decided to spend the winter there. 
Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste. That means speedily, quickly, that they may lack nothing. So there are several instructions there. To use and to support fellow, that's the key word, fellow servants. He says, when I send, we don't know when he was going to send. He didn't tell him when he was going to send it. He says, I'm going to send you one or two guys. They didn't know which one would come, but he said, I'm going to send one of these two guys. And Titus had a responsibility to take care of those fellow, those fellow servants. That they might, verse 13, lack nothing. As far as I know, there's nothing that we know about Artemis from any other places in Scripture. Tychicus, we read about him a number of times as being one that traveled Paul and helped Paul and taught and preached. Zenos, as far as I know, well, the text we know says he was a lawyer. And as far as I know and I recall, he's the only Christian one mentioned in Scripture. And you can take that for what it's worth. For all I know, there's a hundred lawyers that were faithful Christians in the first century. But for all I know that I've studied, there's only one Christian lawyer that's mentioned in Scripture. Well, again, take that for what it's worth. Apollos, we're familiar with him from Acts 19 or 18 and 19. How originally he only knew the baptism of John and how he needed to change that. And I truly believe that if he didn't understand proper baptism, he would have been baptized correctly too after he understood the way of the Lord more perfectly, even though the text doesn't explicitly say that. If he was teaching the baptism of John after it ceased to be effective, that would be after the resurrection of Christ, if he wasn't teaching baptism correctly, then he would not have understood his own baptism or the purpose for it at that time after the resurrection of Christ. So I truly believe we would have to conclude if we're fair with the text and all the other things, the harmony of the Word of God, he would have been baptized correctly at that time. Now, Apollos is a great preacher, great servant, and he says that I may, I may send him. He says, send Zenos the lawyer. Well, actually what he's telling him is this, send Zenos and Apollos on their journey with haste. He's telling Titus that, that they may lack nothing. Later we read that Titus did go to Dalmatia because from my understanding, 2 Timothy was the last letter written by Paul. And he mentions that in his letter, 2 Timothy 4.10. The main idea that I want us to gather from this letter D is we are a team. Keyword team. As God's team, it's not enough to have healthy elders. It necessitates healthy members. And it's not enough to have healthy members. Healthy elders and healthy members must have healthy work. Chapter 3. And each member is valuable. We're a team. It's not a one-man show. It's not an eldership show. I mean, I might have, might have gone and say it ain't a show, which, you know, I'm using accommodative language. It's not a one-man show. It's, it's not an eldership show. It's, it's the showing of Christ to the world as a team. We're working together. Use and support fellow servants. So the leadership of the church must be devoted to one another, to the Lord. Evangelists, they are to serve in unity and harmony. And we see that with these guys. We see that with Artemis. We see that with Tychicus. We see that with Zenos and Apollos. Even some of them we don't know anything about. What we see is we see them working in unity and harmony. And that means that we are to move to assist each other for whatever is best for the cause. It's not about us. It's about the Lord and about His church. It's about bringing people to Jesus. And so our prayer needs to be that we're not in the way of people coming to God, but that we're helping people come to God. Number five, they were to be careful to, keyword furnish needs in the congregation. 
to provide for. Particularly, he mentions in verse 14, pressing or urgent needs. He repeats the idea about maintaining. Make this effort to do good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. And to meet urgent needs in the local church would mean we need to pour our lives into each other. We can't be a people. Just let me know if you need anything, folks. I've learned long ago, and I'm only 37 years old. They won't let you know. They won't. And you know why? Because we don't want to be a burden to anybody. One of the sweetest ladies I ever met in my life, first church I worked with, while I was there, she ended up in the nursing home. As far as I know, she's not alive anymore. I don't know for sure. And often people would ask her, what do you need? I used to say that. Is anything, anything I can do for you? Let me know. Oh, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. One day I asked her more detail about that. She said, well, I don't want to be a burden to anybody. Incidentally, we're actually commanded <laughs> to bear each other's burdens. Galatians 6.2. So if you have ever thought or still think, well, I don't tell people because I don't want to be a burden. Help them obey God by telling them your problem and what they can do for you. Help them. Don't hinder them from obeying God. And on the other side, maybe instead of saying, is there anything I can do to help, because that's pretty much a useless question, instead, pour your life into each other to the point you know what they need. All right? Think about it in our own families. Do we do that with our children? Our little children, let me know if you need anything, Cheyenne. No. <laughs> I know what Cheyenne needs. And when I don't, my wife does. <laughs> right? We're a team. Just like the church is a team. So instead of saying those things, we mean well by that. But I would like to suggest I found myself kind of hiding behind that. Let me know if you need anything. I'm kind of hiding back. You know, like they probably won't say anything, anything. What if they say, yeah, but all right, here it is. I need 500 bucks this week or I'm going to be kicked out of my house. Well, I don't have $500. You see what I'm saying? It's like... You walk in the building and somebody says, how are you doing? Well, you got time to hear? You, you see what I'm saying? It's like, do we really mean it when we ask those questions? Well, I want to believe we usually do mean it. I do. I'm not going to judge your intentions. God knows our intentions. And I believe there are many God people here in this congregation. We, we mean it when we say it. But let's move further by actually furnishing the need. The world will know us by this. It hurts us. It's a terrible testimony to the saving power of God if we're not meeting each other's needs. And what I have seen is that sometimes people's needs get met by denominations. They're members of the church, and their needs get met by denominations instead of the church. Or they get met by the government. I've even heard Christians argue that. Well, we don't need to spend the money out of the treasure to help them do that. There's a government program for that. Pray tell what verse says that. What verse says that it's the church's job to point people to the government to get them? It's, there's not. Well, we don't want people mooching off the church. Who said helping people in good faith is mooching? It's not. And if you truly think somebody's mooching, sit down with them and help them learn how to not mooch. Instead of going, you don't belong in this church, get out. Remember, we talked about discipleship. It's a process. It takes time. And people will see that when they see us furnishing the needs of one another. Letter D, under number five. The main idea, I think, is be purposefully, key word, purposefully busy. Maybe a lot of us are busy, but we're not purposefully busy. We're doing a lot of busy work, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this, doing this. And some of it's good, maybe some of it's not that helpful. 
And we need purpose in what we're doing. Goals, specific ideas, specific needs and concerns. Number six, we need to love faithful friends. Key word, friends. The very last verse says, all who are with me, right, this is Paul writing to Titus. And where Paul is, he's saying, all that are with me where I'm at, in Nicopolis, they greet you. And he tells Titus, greet those who love us, the people that are with you, in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Our, our, one of our greatest treasures, one of our greatest assets is one another. And yet, if we become selfish and self-centered, caring primarily about our own concerns and not one another, we walk in and out of the building like ships passing in the night. We don't hate each other, but we've become distracted. And our conversations mostly revolve around, yeah, it's hot outside, it's cold outside. What'd you say at football game? And it's not a sin. I, I don't think anybody will go to hell for talking about the weather. But we might go to hell if all we talk about is the weather and we don't focus on the work of the Lord. I think you all can see where that would be a very serious problem. And so the more we grow closer to God and we love these faithful friends, we're more thankful for them. And we learn how to use each other. We learn how to open up to each other instead of being clammed up like a little shell. I don't want to tell anybody. I don't want to judge. I don't want anybody to not like me. I get it. I don't want to be ostracized either. I get that. But the more, again, the more we practice all the things that we've considered in these healthy relationships in Titus chapter 2, we will become a people who can confess their faults to one another. And sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so won't get on Facebook and say it because it's a family problem that we're working on together because we want to be effective in reaching people around us. We need to love. We need to be careful to love faithful friends. These are Paul's last words in this letter. He says, look, I got a group of folks over here. They love you. And you got a group of people over there that love us. Well, we greet y'all and you all. I say y'all. Y'all probably do it too, right? Y'all, y'all, y'all. I'm from Alabama. I say y'all. We love y'all. They love us. And that's one of the greatest things in all the world. Because love is so much. It's not just words. It's not just a feeling. It, it, it's a command of God. It's a lifestyle. It's a decision. And it's blessings that result from it. Main, the main idea from this, I think, letter C, is keep godly friends close. Key word, close. Keep them close. Because the, the, the effects of the world around us are strong. Satan's using the people of the world to draw us away. But... We're to, we're to affect the world but not be affected by the world, right? It's not easy. We're to be in the world but not of the world. So, so how do we do that? Well, well we, we feast on Christ and his word daily, like the noble Bereans, Acts 17, 11. Not once a week on Sunday, twice a week on Wednesday. Not when I have time. We make time because we love the Lord. We want to grow. We want to be a healthy church. So the keys to evangelism here that we've considered together is right relationships. Right relationships among leaders, members, and work. And I want to say one of the things I'm impressed with about the congregation here. You love one another. 
but particularly with the leaders. And I feel the same way about my leaders where I'm at. They love each other. They, like, they even like each other. <laughs> That's huge. You know, people like Brock and I, we're blessed to know a number of preachers in a number of areas, just through school and such. And the circumstances and the stories that we hear about power problems and elderships, as far as I know, you, you don't have that here. We don't have that at Washington Avenue. We have godly elders. You have godly. Get behind those men. Listen to those men. When they admonish you, whether it's out there in there or at your home or at the ballpark, or they say a word and go, listen, take it in. They know they're going to give account for what they do. And that's on their mind all the time. And you already want to please the Lord, so it's not that hard. With healthy members, the relationships that we have with one another, the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, there's a place for everybody. We can't say, I don't connect. We can't say, I don't have a part. We do. There are instructions for all of us. And the work that we do, we, we talked last night about gracious teaching, you know, being gracious to people in the world. We keep that in mind, and we be careful about these things. I think all of this letter is so much is about healthy doctrine, healthy relationships. And sometimes to keep healthy relationships, we have to reject a divisive person. Now, if we were left to our own, we wouldn't do that. Because I hardly know anybody that's faithful to the Lord and they love confrontation. <laughs> it's only the people that are living lives of sin that enjoy confrontation. But to maintain health relationships, there are circumstances where we must, after the first and second admonition, reject such a person. Healthy work. These are some keys. And the letter emphasizes God's grace. Without God's grace, we can't do it. But with God's grace and our faith, we can. God will enable us. He will provide a way. This is Wednesday night. Probably 99% of everyone in here, hopefully, is a member of the church of Christ. Maybe you're here and you're not. Or you're almost in your mind because you've been thinking about it. The Lord wants you to know almost is not enough. Almost is not where he wants you to be. He wants you to make that decision to go all the way. It's not needed to ask Jesus to come into your heart. His charge is come after him. Luke 9, 23. And the way we do that is we learn of him. We come to him in the things that he teaches and in the things that he has done. We come believing that he is who he claimed to be as God. John 8, 24. We come penitently, sorrowful over our sins and wrongdoings. Our hearts are heavy when we realize the seriousness of sin. That sin is the reason why Jesus went through that great ordeal that he did. And it causes us, when we hear the word, to have sorrow. And scripture says, godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. And we get godly sorrow from hearing God's word. And we couple it with faith. And we have godly sorrow, and it produces change in our heart, repentance. And what that does is that leads us to confess that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10.10. 10. That's a way of saying biblically, Jesus is my master, and I'm going to serve him. And to become his servant, I'm going to go down into the waters, and I'm going to obey him. I'm going to be baptized into his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And I'm going to do that from the heart. Romans 10, Romans 6, 17 and 18. If you're here tonight and you've not obeyed from the heart, think about this very seriously. And if you know you're ready, make a decision now. If you have questions, reach out, ask questions. Ask people here. You may be here and you know that there's someone here who does care for you. And you can go to them and you can talk to them. I hope there's something that I've said. I hope more than just one something. But I hope there are things that I've said from God's word that has motivated us to think about evangelism. I want to close with this note. With God's grace, when we act in faith, we can be effective in reaching the community around us. We cannot make ourselves think that the gospel doesn't work anymore, that no one today wants it, that I don't know enough and I'm not able I'm thinking people in the first century could have thought the same thing. They had their own sins, their own circumstances, their own troubles, their own civil government that was nuts, <laughs> kind of like ours. But they taught, and they learned, and they grew, and they served, and they suffered. And 1 Peter was written to emphasize glorifying Christ through sufferings. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution you've heard this probably a hundred times right here if we're not suffering serving the lord are we serving the lord because all that will live godly will suffer persecution shouldn't we develop the attitude that i want to suffer for the lord's sake not i mean i don't i don't i don't want to be filleted alive i don't i don't want to be shot you know i don't I want to live and serve and teach and enjoy my family. We, we get that. But think about the witness and the power that that attests to the gospel. When we're willing to suffer, whatever it may be, even if it's not death. You know, it's easy to say, well, I'd die for the Lord. Okay, well, we live for him. If somebody came in right now, Christians go over here. If you don't, we'll shoot you. We won't shoot you. What about now? You know, how is it that we would line up with the people that would confess if right now we won't confess them? If right now we won't tell people that we work with, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I'm not ashamed of it. And I want you to know that. Let's not make evangelism hard and complicated. It should flow out of our hearts from the Word of God. We can tell someone what it means to learn the gospel. We can tell them how we learned, and we can teach them what we were taught and we can explain that to them. If we can't, we probably should seriously scrutinize, am I really a Bible Christian or not? If you're here and you're wondering about that, well, my suggestion to you is to make sure you know and then obey from the heart. If you're a child of God and you know you've sinned in the area of evangelism, we don't like to think about that. We tend to think of sins as all that long list that I had up here the other night. If we know we have missed the mark of teaching people that are around us, we've not made efforts, we're not seeking to learn and grow in those areas, we've just thought that we were excused from that responsibility, repent. Change your heart. And hold those faithful friends like we ended with close to you that will help motivate you to do that. Those have been the greatest examples and encouragements to me. Find those people in your congregations. Find those people in your lives and be friends with them and hold to them and work together to reach those people that are around you. Every effort is worth it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Everything that we do for the Lord is not in vain.
seeing that there will be a great resurrection day, it's not in vain when it's in the Lord. It will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. If you need to respond, if you're here and you have some prayers or requests that you have, some burden on your heart as a child of God, take advantage of it tonight. Don't go home bearing the burden alone. There are godly brothers here and sisters too who will pray with you and for you. If you need to respond, come right now. Let's stand together and let's sing.